Okay, so uh, in light of that, let us pray for the preaching of God's word. Father in heaven, you are a God beyond all praising. Your word is powerful enough to set the heavens and the earth where it is, Lord. And it is powerful enough to change the broken and hardened heart of a sinner to a heart that worships you. Lord, as we come under the teaching of your word today, soften our hearts and give us ears to hear that we may know the glory of your purposes in this world and that we may be moved by who you are and what you are wanting to do through us and with us. Bless your servant Tazar as he preaches your word. May the words of his mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Sam. Um, friends, we did, I think, forget to announce that ch kids are free to go to the children's ministry. Um, uh, so if you want to make your way there now, our volunteers will guide you to the appropriate place. Okay? All right. As they do that, friends, uh, let me just uh, welcome us again here in our worship time today. It's good to see you. Uh, it's good to be able to worship with you in person and hopefully... Uh, COVID numbers continue to stay low so that we can continue to do this without any other um, complications. And today, we're going to be continuing, friends, in our sermon series through the book of Acts. And if you remember that last week, we ended, we're done with Acts chapter 9, and now we're going to start Acts chapter 10. And both of these chapters, chapter 9 and 10, are, are very much connected to one another. Okay? If you remember last week, what we saw at the end of Acts chapter 9 is that the church was called by God to be agents of renewal, right? Uh, in the city or in the region that they're in, whether that's in the area of physical renewal, emotional renewal, uh, uh, vocational renewal, cultural renewal, especially spiritual renewal as we preach the gospel here in the city that we're in. And when the church does that in the city that they're in, what we're doing there is that we're bringing heaven down to earth. That was the feel of the end of Acts chapter 9. Okay, we're giving the people in the city a preview or a taste of what heaven will look like if it were on earth. And, and that I want to offer to us is a big neglected part of mission work. I think a lot of us, when we think about mission and sharing the gospel, uh, we think about showing people the way into God's kingdom, which is through the blood of Christ and through the blood of Christ alone, yes. But I think what Acts chapter 9 showed us last week is that a big part of mission work isn't just showing people the way into heaven, but to show people what heaven will actually look like once you're in it, which is a renewed society, a renewed culture. And we're called to display that as best as we can here on earth today, okay? So now in Acts chapter 10, we're still commanded to do the same thing. It's still the same command. However, it gets more specific about what aspect of heaven uh, that we're particularly called to show here in Acts chapter 10, okay? And that's the area of ethnic or racial or cultural unity that we'll see in heaven. You remember Revelation chapter 7, what it displayed heaven to be? It was this place where everyone from all different tribes, tongues, nations, people groups come and worship God together, right? We're called to do, we're called to display that as best as we can here today, all right? So that's what chapter 10, Acts chapter 10 is about. It's calling the church to start displaying that reality that diverse reality of heaven now, today, okay? So we're going to get into it. We're going to study all of Acts chapter 10. 
It's a long passage, it's 48 verses, and I'm about to read all of them. So I hope you guys can uh, stay tuned and attentive during it, especially by verse 38, maybe. That's when you guys kind of wary off. Just, just try to push through, because if we break this up to different sermons, it's not really going to make sense as a whole, okay? So I'm going to read Acts chapter 10. This is God's word, verses 1 to 48. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come to him and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God hath made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed, confused as to what the vision that had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered, and he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of other nations. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then, why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, 
a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism of John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not, all, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to, to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Thus says the Lord, Okay, hope you followed along through all that, and let's parse through it. It's okay if you didn't catch all that, don't worry. There's three things that I want to point out from our passage today, okay, specifically about the church's call toward multicultural, multiracial unity, okay? And I'll try to keep it short, but it is a long passage, so I may take an extra five minutes if that's okay with you, okay? Four points. Not, did I say three? I meant four. First point, God's desire cross-cultural reconciliation. Second, our problem, elevating tradition over God's word. Third, God's solution, an ego-crushing gospel. And four, God's pace, faster than our preference. Okay, so four points. Don't worry about jotting them all down now. It's gonna come back up on the screen again as we go if you're wanting to write them. Okay, so let's break this passage down and see what God has to say to us. First point, God's desire is cross-cultural reconciliation. Okay, so if you remember last week at the end of Acts chapter 9, we saw God slowly warming up his people, the Israelites at the time, about his desire to include all other cultures in the world into his kingdom through the blood of Christ, right? And the Israelites didn't like that idea very much because they're used to being the only race that was in God's kingdom all throughout the Old Testament. It was just them. So they're not used to, they don't really like this idea of including all other cultures and nations. So God kind of broke the news to them very patiently, very gradually, step by step. If you remember that, right? First, he led the apostle Peter to a city called Lydda. Remember, that was uh, uh, 40, or, yeah, 40 kilometers away from Jerusalem, and it only had about 50% Jewish population there. And God shared the gospel there through Peter. And then the second city that Peter went to was Joppa. 
You remember that? Joppa was another 32 kilometers away from Lydda, away from Jerusalem, and there was only about 20% Jewish population there. And now, in Acts chapter 10, verse 1, we just read about another city. We're brought to another city called Caesarea. Now, Caesarea is another 30 kilometers away from Joppa. So at this point, we are about 102 kilometers away from Jerusalem. And we find ourselves in the city where there's almost no Jews there, mostly just Roman citizens or Italians today, I guess. And the original Jewish readers there at the point would have probably gone, okay, Lydda, I get, Joppa, I get. You know, it's not that far. There's still about 20 to 50% of Jews there. But Caesarea? That's way too far. And there are no Jews there. Why, why are we even there? And God's response to them is found in the conversation that he had with Cornelius, a centurion, in verse 1, it says, who's living in Caesarea. Now, a centurion is a Roman general who's in charge of a hundred soldiers, right? A century, a hundred, okay? So this guy's a big deal. Now, Cornelius was not yet a Christian at this point, okay? Although verse 2 does say that he has inclinations toward worshiping the God of the Old Testament. Look at verse 2. It says that he gave alms to God. He prayed to God. And in verse 3, we see that during one of his prayer times, God responded to Cornelius, which kind of freaked him out. Of course it would. It would me too. And said, Cornelius, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, you got to get the reference here to really understand what God's trying to say. For something to ascend as a memorial before God, that's temple sacrifice language. So in the Old Testament, when the Israelites would kill an animal or a lamb and then burn it as an offering to God, right, in the temple, it's often described as ascending as a memorial before God. So let me invite us all here to put two and two together. What's God trying to say here to the original Jewish readers at the time who would be asking, God, why Caesarea? There's no Jews there. There's no temple there. God's trying to get him to see that, look, true worship can happen outside of the temple. True worship can happen 102 kilometers away from Jerusalem. And that's always been my plan. I've always wanted to gather many people from different tribes, tongues, and nations into my kingdom. That's the point here of saying your, 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 your prayers have ascended as, as an alms to the Lord or as, as an offering to the Lord. Now, why is that God's goal? Why does God want to gather people from different tongues, nations into his kingdom? Here's a helpful way that I've heard it be explained in the past. You know how different people with different temperaments and personalities might bring out different parts of you depending on who you hang out with at the time. You know, you know what I'm talking about? So I have a friend, for example, who's Presbyterian. And I'm Presbyterian, but this guy is like Presbyterian, if you know what I mean. Like he's, and it's not gray, don't worry. But I have a friend who I hang out with who's, who's like that, okay? And when I hang out with this guy, I find particular parts of me coming out more. I find that naturally parts of, different parts of me are being highlighted more in that interaction, and I love it. It's great. I get to be all Reformed Presby with one another. You know, it's fun. But then later on that day, 
for example, I'd go home and I'll hang out with Liam and Elena, my kids, and I'll go to the pool with them and I'll swim with some of their friends and, and their friends' parents. And, a, and they have different temperaments than my Presby friend. And at that time, a different part of me comes out. I'm more playful, perhaps. But then, later that night, on weekends sometimes, you know, some people in the neighborhood would get together and play board games with one another. And I'd join, you know, and some people there, without naming any names, can get a little bit competitive. And when I'm with them, I find a different part of me comes out, maybe more of the competitive side. Some of you are like, you play board games with your neighbors? Yeah, it's a weird neighborhood. I don't know what to tell you. We do that sometimes. Here's my point. Three different sides of me are being expressed more when I'm with different kinds of people. But here's the point. I'm not being fake. At least I don't think I am. It's not because I'm changing who I am based on who I'm with. It, it, tr- it truly is me. When I'm with my Presby friend or when I'm with, at the pool with my kid's parents' friends or when I'm playing board games, you know, screaming because I just lost Uno or something, it's all still me. I'm not sure if you've experienced that. And do you, know, do you know why that is? It's not because we're fake. It's because we are too complex of a creature. We are too multifaceted of beings that different sides of us get expressed more depending on what kind of person we're with. Now, okay, back to my point. Similarly, when Christianity, or God's kingdom, interacts with one particular culture, there are some aspects of Christianity, of God's kingdom, and of the king himself, dare I say, that will naturally be more emphasized and expressed and visible in some cultures compared to others. For example, in our culture here in Indonesia, and I think this is fair to say, that we value politeness over efficiency and progress. Is that fair to say? For the most part, we value politeness over, that's why cashier longs are so long, right? Because we just value politeness. Okay, is valuing politeness and kindness and gentleness over progress and efficiency, is that a trait of God's kingdom? Absolutely it is. How is the fruit of the Spirit measured? Not by numerical results, not by progress. The fruit of the Spirit is measured by Kindness, gentleness, you see, it's a trait of God's kingdom. But in other cultures, they would value progress and efficiency over politeness. Okay, is progress and efficiency a trait of God's kingdom? Of course it is. The Bible starts off with God's kingdom being displayed as a garden, and then it ends in Revelation as a big, huge city. You know what that's called? Progress. Some cultures value hierarchy more than uh, unilateral equality, you know, more than, uh, uh, more than uh, egalitarian equality, okay? Is, is hierarchy, is respecting people who are in different positions in society a trait of God's kingdom? Of course it is. Honor your father and mother. Give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Give uh, the elder, the teaching elder specifically, double honor. But then there are other cultures who hear me talk about hierarchy like this and they immediately get nervous because hierarchy is not this foundation for a good society to them. Hierarchy is this dangerous thing that could actually end up being abusive or whatnot. So they value more equality and, you know, I mean, everybody's the same. Is that a kingdom trait? It is too. What did Paul say in Galatians 3? There's neither Jew nor Greek. 
nor slave, nor free, nor male, nor female. All are equal, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. You see what I'm saying? Christianity, or if I can put it, the culture of God's kingdom is way too complex. It's way too multifaceted for just one culture to fully express. And that's why in Revelation chapter 7, we'll see the fullness of God's glory expressed how? When all tribes, all tongues, all cultures, all nations worship him, the lamb who was slain, together for the forgiveness of their sins. That's always been the plan. That's what God's trying to start here in Acts chapter 10, right? He's bringing his kingdom from just one ethnicity, the the Jewish ethnicity, to many, starting with the Romans here in Caesarea. But here's our problem. Like Peter, we often are resistant to God when he does that. Why? Because we can be so consumed, we can be so entranced by the specific Christian expression of our culture that when we see Christian expression in other cultures, our knee-jerk reaction is anxiety, it's suspicion, and even at times rejection, which leads us to our second point, our problem, elevating tradition over God's word. Our problem, which is also in Peter, we see here, as we move on to our next scene in verse 9 to 23, is that we confuse our tradition with God's word. Okay, so back to the conversation God had with Cornelius, okay, at the end of verse 2. At the end of that talk, God told Cornelius to send some soldiers to go fetch this guy named Peter, who is currently at, at a house in Joppa. Okay, and that's about one day travel to uh, Joppa from Caesarea. But God didn't really tell him why. He just said, just go and get him. So Cornelius does that. And in verse 9, the scene moves now from Caesarea to Joppa, where we see Peter praying in the roof of a house there at noontime, it says. So it tells us this is the next day already, right? So skip a day. Cornelius' soldiers are about to arrive there in Joppa. Right before that happens, God gave Peter this vision in verses 11 to 13 and showed him a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, which, by the way, were all considered unclean by the Jewish tradition back then. And there came a voice to Peter saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And then look at Peter's response in verse 14. Oh, I don't do that stuff, Lord. I don't eat unclean things. That, that's breaking the rules. <laughs> so let's think about this for a second. You know, it's like, Peter, you realize who you're talking to here, right? It's God. <laughs> and you're giving him a lesson about what's clean and unclean? The highest authority in the universe is telling you, eat it. It's clean. And your response is, ah, I might get in trouble. By who? <laughs> Who's going to get you in trouble? The highest authority in the universe is saying, it's fine. It's clean. Eat it. But he can't. Now, some people have said that maybe Peter here is hesitant because he thought God was just testing him, right? Because, to be fair, in the Old Testament, God himself did say that these foods are unclean. So it's not just tradition. God did say that, okay? And since this is the first time Peter's hearing that God say it is clean, he's suspicious. Are you just trying to test me? 
But actually, this isn't the first time Peter heard this. Peter's heard God say that these foods are clean a few times. Jesus himself said it in Matthew chapter 15 and Mark chapter 7. Remember when Jesus said, what makes you unclean isn't the food that you eat. Remember that? What makes you unclean is the words that come out of your mouth because it's a representation of your heart. You're already unclean in your heart anyways. It's not these foods. So all these foods that were considered unclean, Jesus already said, it's clean, it's fine, eat it. So Peter heard Jesus say it. Peter heard God say it here in Acts 10. But it's like, it won't sink. His mind and his body aren't able to just flip the switch like that. And, and I, I get it. You know, by the way, if you didn't know, I, before as a Christian, I came from a different religion as well. I came to Christ in 2006. And in that religion, there were certain meats that I couldn't eat. And when I became a Christian, it was really hard to just flip the switch. You know, so for a while, I still ordered burger without bacon. Because I just couldn't get myself to do it. There's something in me that just still felt resistant toward it. It's so ingrained in us. So I know how Peter feels here, having cultural traditions and habits sound louder than God's word. You see, people who don't know much about culture talk a lot about changing it. But people who do know a lot about culture talk more about how it changes you. It changes you. It shapes you. We, like Peter, can be so molded in our own cultural assumptions that we subconsciously elevate them sometimes, even above God's word, even above the Bible. And we end up using these cultural assumptions instead of the Bible as the norm for everyone else. I've met someone who told me that a preacher must always wear a suit and tie because a suit and tie expresses formality and honor and respect to God. It does in your culture, <laughs> but you go preach the gospel in the middle of Amazon somewhere or Papua New Guinea and you wear a suit and tie, it's going to be completely distracting for people. They're going to be like, what's that thick piece of cloth going down your chest? Like, what is that? It's not going to give the same effect. Friends, as Christianity and the gospel takes hold of different cultures, we got to learn to work with one another. We got to be able to have discussion about what parts of our Christian practices are actually biblical and which parts are just cultural. The church can't just simply copy and paste throughout the whole world. That's not called expanding God's kingdom, that's called unintentional colonization. And don't hear me wrong, I'm not saying Christian truths and practices are relative and they change depending on what culture they're in. No, no, no. If a truth and a practice is in the Bible, it is always true in all cultures at all times. But how these practices take root in a particular culture may not be the exact same, okay? We have to be able to have these conversations and talk about it. The problem is, we almost always get into this family feud five minutes into these conversations. We fight so quickly, so easily. Because it's a sensitive topic, egos get hurt, okay? So what our passage does next, as we move on to the third point, is it gives us the solution that we need in order to have these conversations without fighting, okay? Third point, God's solution, an ego-crushing gospel. Back to our story. Remember the soldiers that Cornelius sent to get Peter? Well, they arrived at Peter's footsteps, uh, or door at verse 17, right after Peter got done having this vision at the rooftop, and they knocked on the door, 
and they invited Peter to come with them to Cornelius' house in Caesarea. Now, I just want to pause there. I want to ask you guys to do an exercise with me, okay? Put your, shoe, put your feet in Peter's shoe for a second. Imagine in your head right now a particular race or ethnicity or demographic of people that make you feel most uncomfortable and nervous. Take a second to think about that. And no one knows who you're thinking, so you're safe. Okay, you can be honest with yourself. Okay? Now imagine tomorrow at lunchtime, two soldiers from that group or demographic knock on your front door and say, hey, come with us. (laughs) What would you feel? How do you think Peter felt? But Peter let them in the house anyways in verse 23. And he went with them to Caesarea the next day. Why? Because of the vision God gave him. He's trying to connect the dots. Okay, God showed me this vision two minutes ago about having all foods being clean. And now there's two Roman soldiers that's knocking on my door, inviting me to go with them to this non-Jewish home, which, by the way, would have also been traditionally unclean because in non-Jewish homes, guess what food they serve you? Unclean foods. But at some point, maybe it was that night when the soldiers stayed there, or maybe it was the trip to Caesarea the next day, at some point, it clicked in Peter's mind, maybe God's trying to tell me something here about how my cultural assumptions are interfering with his kingdom growth. And by the time he got to Cornelius' house the next day, he was a totally different Peter than he was while he was still on the rooftop in Joppa. Look at verse 35, 25, sorry. When Peter arrived at Cornelius' house, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter responded in verse 26, Stop. Stand up. I'm just a man. And there it is, friends. It seems so elementary, doesn't it? But this is where we start. The Bible reminds us that if we want to see cross-cultural reconciliation happen in our city, starting with the church, the first thing that we've got to remember is that we're all just human. Peter didn't view this meeting as a meeting between Jewish person and a Roman person, but as a meeting between two human beings. That's the first step. But that's not enough. That alone isn't enough. Peter continues to say that not only are we all just humans, but we're all sinful humans. Look at verse 34 to 36. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation to anyone who fears him and does what is right and is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. There's no partiality, Peter says, for anyone from any nation. Anyone can have peace with God. How? Through Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins. We're all sinful. We all need Jesus to give us peace with the Father. So you may be here today, you're white Anglo-Saxon, you're Chinese descent, maybe you're African descent, Indian, my skin, colored Indonesian, Puerto Rican, whatever else. Peter's reminding us all here, the only reason that you're in the kingdom 
is because the king died for your mistakes. Because you have peace with God only through Christ. And that understanding should produce an insane amount of humility and patience for other people in their blind spots and other cultures in their blind spots. We're all in here because he was patient and merciful to us. But Peter went further still. Look at verse 39. In his gospel, in his gospel presentation to Cornelius, he made sure to confess the sins of his own culture to Cornelius and his household. Look at verse 39. Peter said, we saw what Jesus did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, and they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Who did Peter say put Jesus to death by hanging them on the tree? The Jews. They. My own people. We have blind spots too, Peter's saying. We have shortcomings too. We don't measure up to God's kingdom culture either, you see. When I was in the rooftop in Joppa, Peter's saying, I thought the Jews were here and everyone else was here. But you know what? Really, we're all just humans, verse 26. And really, you know what? We're all just sinful humans forgiven by Christ, verse 34. And you know what? Sometimes my culture is even worse. Like, for example, that time when we killed Jesus, <laughs> that one. So I guess we're not the judge, Peter continues. I guess I'm not the judge. The Jews aren't the judge. Our culture isn't the standard for all other cultures. Okay, so who is the judge then? Look at verse 42. He, Peter says, who commanded us to preach to the people, the one appointed by God, referring to Jesus Christ, he is the judge of the living and the dead. Not me, not my traditions, not my culture, not my people. He is. Now I'm going to take a risk here and bring this home a little bit more for us, okay? You ever heard that saying that when John the Baptist preached repentance generically, people loved him, but then when he specifically told King Herod to repent, he got his head chopped off? <laughs> I'm about to get specific here, and I hope my head stays intact. Because I think a lot of people here in Indonesia feel like we don't struggle with this. We feel like we're not as bad as Peter. We feel like we're not as bad as the Jews at the time. Because we're a diverse country made of so many different cultures, and we believe in Bineka Tunggal Ika, right? Which means diverse but one. But if that's actually true, then why do I still see so many parents not letting their kids marry people who are outside of their own ethnicity? Hello. If that's true, then why does it seem like whoever has some kind of political agenda, all they need to do is just rile up people and refer to some kind of racial hot button topic, and all of a sudden it's clickbait? Are we better than them? Is ethnocentrism uprooted from our hearts? I would argue no. Like Peter, like the Israelites back then, ethnocentrism is still lurking in us, and the gospel has to weed it out. It has to. Why? Well, here's a bit of a twist as we get to our last point. 
we Christians must outroot ethnocentrism from our hearts. Why? So that the gospel can reach many different nations and cultures, right? No. That's not the reason. The gospel's gonna reach many different cultures and nations, whether we like it or not. God's already predetermined that was gonna happen since forever ago. We need to uproot it out of our hearts so that we don't become resentful citizens of this kingdom that God's gonna continue to diversify. What do I mean? Let me explain, let's go to our last point. God's pace is faster than our preference. Okay, let's move on to the last part of the passage, which I find kind of comedic, actually. Look at verse 44. It says, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. So picture this. Peter was mid-sentence. While he was saying these things, you know, he was in the middle of preaching the gospel, probably was about to offer his climactic last point or something, and while he was talking, the Holy Spirit just kind of cut him off and said, it's all right, that's good, thanks, Pete, you know, I got it from here. <laughs> Let's wrap this up. And then the Holy Spirit came over Cornelius and everybody who was there. It was, it was so abrupt, no one was ready, not even the other Jewish Christians who were there with Peter. Look at verse 45. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, they were shocked, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even to the Gentiles, as if that's supposed to be surprised at this point. <laughs> No one was ready in this whole story, not even the Gentiles. Stick with me as I take one quick last trip back into this story, okay? Let's go back a few scenes in our heads to that scene when Cornelius' soldiers first knocked on Peter's door. Okay, remember, God didn't tell Cornelius why he needs to get Peter. He just told him to go get Peter. So, you know, picture this. In verse 17, Peter was still inwardly confused, the passage says, about the vision he got on the rooftop. He wasn't ready. And all of a sudden, two Roman soldiers knocked on his door saying, hey, you gotta come with us. And in verse 21, Peter was like, why? Who are you? And the soldiers went, I I don't know why. Cornelius sent us. God told him to come get you. For what? We don't know. Does Cornelius know? No. God didn't tell him anything. And they're both just standing there in the doorway, staring at each other, going, what is happening? Everyone's confused. No one knows what's going on. So the Holy Spirit in this whole scene is pictured as this. Taking the Jewish Peter, say, come. Taking the non-Jewish Cornelius, saying, come. And doing this, and no one was ready. Everyone was caught off guard. Look, in, in one sense, God's going to work with you patiently. Right? He'll start in Lydda, and then he'll go to Joppa, right? and then he'll do it step by step. He'll kind of warm you up to it. That's a, that's a motif here we see in this passage. But in another sense, he's not going to wait around for you forever. He's not on your schedule. Everyone in this story was caught by surprise from beginning to end. The Holy Spirit orchestrated it all, and everyone was just kind of, what's going on? God's saying here, you better get on board, quick. If not, you're going to be really uncomfortable with the future kingdom that I have in mind. So Peter, still trying to catch on, you know, in verse 47 said, look, if the Holy Spirit's with them, if they receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, 
can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people? Which baptism at the time meant inclusion into the kingdom. Can anyone deny access into God's kingdom? Oh my, what an important question. And, and it's really a rhetorical question, isn't it? God isn't actually asking for our permission here. If he's asking us a rhetorical question, if I've saved these people through Christ, who are you to deny them? And friends, if we leave with anything today, we got to hear this rhetorical question ring in our minds over and over and over again, especially when we meet other Christians from a different ethnicity, from a different socioeconomic background, from a different generation or age bracket. They may have quirks about them. We have quirks about us. That's off. And if God's accepted them, who are we to condemn them? And as I end, let me just remind us of this one thing. You know, God asks this rhetorical question not only to protect other people from our accusations, does he? God asks this rhetorical question to protect us from accusation as well. Does he not? What does a hymn say? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, when I make mistakes, when I sin, and when Satan in my own conscience accuses me of guilt, guilt that I deserve, what do I do? Upward I look, and I see him there who's made an end to all my sin. Who's left to condemn you, God asks us. Who dare challenges my decision to wash you clean from your sin? Your own guilty conscience? You think your feelings about yourself is stronger than my love for you? Satan? No. Not even hell's, hell's worst fire could make God flinch. There is no one left. No one left to condemn you if you're in Christ. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. God is saying here, extend this to others. Don't condemn them. Friends, may this gospel of grace uproot any sense of ethnocentrism that we still may have in our hearts. For the sake of God's kingdom growth, for the sake of our own sanity as citizens of this diverse kingdom, and for the glory of the one who is Lord of all. Let's pray. Father, what a powerful truth packed in 48 verses that we often hold other things above your word. Help us, Father, trust in what you have said in the Bible more than our own feelings, more than our own traditions, and help let it humble us as we ponder upon this cross in which the king has died. Let it humble us. Let it make us unbelievably patient and meek and kind. 
to others and their blind spots for you and others are also extending the same kind of mercy to, to us. Father, I pray that you cause this word to nourish your people here in this church and that they may be built up and grow one step forward to becoming the kind of people that could display the reality of heaven here on earth as we live lovingly, patiently, long-suffering, um, gently with one another despite all of our faults and sins and blind spots. Extend this mercy to us, Father, for the sake of your church and for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.